The more that you read, the more things you will know. The more that you learn, the more places you'll go. Dr. Seuss. Hi, I'm PJ with ZooFit and welcome to Zoo Notable, where we read books that help change the world and share how we can use that wisdom to change our lives. And whether you're an animal care professional or just a lover of nature and the environment, Zoo Notables helps you grow and level up your life. Welcome to a very special Zoo Notable. We're celebrating National Zookeeper Week, July 17th through 23rd. And folks, we have an amazing special guest for you all. He literally wrote the book on animal training, Successful Animal Management Through Positive Reinforcement is published in 1999. And he has worked for over 40 years in the professional field of animal training, including serving as Executive Vice President of Animal Care and Training at Shedd Aquarium in Chicago. His involvement with zoo and animal training organizations has inspired thousands of professional animal care specialists. And now he serves as executive vice president and chief training officer of Karen Pryor Clicker Training, where he helps oversee the vision, development, and implementation of training education programs for the organization. Of course, I'm talking about the one and only Ken Ramirez, renowned animal trainer, and a professional mentor to dog trainers, zookeepers, and everyone who works with animals around the globe. I'm really, really stoked to discuss his latest book, The Eye of the Trainer, and not just what I loved about it, but here's some of his impressions firsthand. So Ken, thank you so much and welcome to Zoo Notable. Well, thank you for the invitation and thank you for that great uh, introduction. I appreciate being here. Yes. Uh, so first and foremost, again, Ken, you're just a, a, a huge inspiration for, at least for me, and I know several other of my, of my colleagues around the country, and I've been just very privileged to have heard you speak and actually have interacted with you on several occasions, and you're just a, a wealth, a wealth of knowledge that you've shared a lot of in your book, The Eye of the Trainer, and what I found was so interesting is is this book, folks, it's not just for people who want to train animals or want to know what it's like to train animals. It's actually the animal trainer's trainer guide. It's, uh, it's those little insights that make us better trainers, not just for animals, but for, for people, for, uh, for our life as, lives as well. Thank you. Yeah, I, the, the sort of the impetus behind the book is over the years I have answered many people's questions about training. I've told many stories about things that I've done. And I realized that uh, for this book, instead of trying to weave the whole thing in one cohesive story together, I realized, you know, let me tell each of these stories as individual stories, either whether it's talking about a particular training point, like a jackpot or an end of session signal, or whether it's talking about how to introduce an animal to training, or whether it's telling a story about an interesting interaction, you can sort of open the book anywhere. And you don't have to start at the beginning or start in any one particular place, you can just pick a story that interests you. And in five minutes, you will have read it and sort of comprehended that particular story and that particular lesson, at least that's my hope. Yeah, you have tons of stories. And again, just being in the field for as long as you have, you have other people that you've experience stories with them and th there's times we could be here all day talking about them i one of my favorites that i've heard you speak of before was training the butterflies mm -hmm. in in london and it was it's just a really amazing story because it literally shows 
if it's an animal, if it has behavior, then we can train it. It's not even not a matter of like, is it smart enough to train or is has it ever been trained before? Does it if it if it has behavior, we can work to to modify it. We can work to uh, to put it on you know on cue and and work with that animal. So it's very fascinating. If you have if you're not sure what I'm talking about, again, there's the book. <laughs> I have the trainer. Ken goes over it. But what was that like? Well, you know, I talk about this a little bit in the book, and for me, it was an interesting, interesting experience. I've often in my, when I teach classes, I used to teach a course at Western Illinois University, and I always used to tell my students, whether you're training an earthworm or a university graduate, we all learn the same way. And apparently a lot of people had heard that quote before, and this botanical garden in the UK was had the director of the botanical garden she had this idea wouldn't it be cool if the if they could train butterflies to fly from one end of the stadium to the other on cue uh, to this London Philharmonic that would be playing music and this was part of this botanical gardens desire to teach lessons about uh, symbiotic relationships between plants and animals and Apparently, everybody that she contacted throughout Europe uh, said, oh, I don't know about training butterflies. I don't know if it can be done, but you know who you should call? This guy, Ken Ramirez in the U.S., he, he, he says, and they, she would, they would tell her what I had said about earthworms. And she, after having heard that from like four different people that she contacted, she decided to reach out to me. And when she asked if I thought that butterflies could be trained, I said, yeah, absolutely. I would imagine a, you just need someone on your team that knows something about their appetite and their hearing and things like that so that good decisions could be made about cues and reinforcement. And she said, well, we have our butterfly biologists on our staff. That's not going to be a problem. And then I said, then there should be no reason they couldn't be trained, especially to do something as simple as flying from point A to point B. And she said, that's great. Would you like to join our team? And I said, Sure, that sounds like fun. But it wasn't until after I hung up the phone that I said to myself, oh my goodness, I don't know anything about butterflies. <laughs> I know they're pretty and I know that they fly, but I don't know what they eat. I don't know if they can hear. I don't know anything about them. And uh, and so we, I started down this journey of working with the butterfly biologist team to learn more about their natural history and came out to London and we began working on this uh, project and it took us 19 days to fully train um, well, well over 10,000 butterflies to fly on cue. In fact, we had three different groups of butterflies that flew on three different cues. And I remember when the project was done, which was, I said, it took us less than three weeks to completely train the, the behavior. I remember being in tears as I watched the butterflies flying on cue uh, and realizing, wow, this was really cool. And whenever I tell the story, People like yourself are always saying, well, that's really cool. But then I remind everybody that it's just an A to B behavior. Like when you tell your dog, come, and he comes running over, nobody says, wow, that is an amazing trick. You got the dog to come when you called it. But when they do it with a butterfly, it's like, wow, that's incredible. But it really is as simple as getting them to fly from point A to point B on a particular cue. And so it really was a very straightforward behavior. The thing that made it the most difficult 
was the distance. We were flying the distance of a football field or a soccer field from one end to the other. And so we really had to maintain their their interest and make sure they would go the full way. And then of course there were a lot of obstacles along the way, but we accomplished it and it was a really a proud accomplishment. It's one of the cooler things that I've trained. It just reminds me of like, again, what you, you even mentioned what Susan Friedman says about labeling animals or labeling people as untrainable. Like, I'm sure, I'm sure if you just went out into the world and be like, I'm gonna train a butterfly, people would be like, you can't train a butterfly. And that's why I really liked about that. It really kind of brought that mind. Once again, it's not about the animal, it's about the behavior. And you even say that in the book, you actually have a really great quote. In our society, we tend to punish or reinforce people, children, and animals. But if you're a true trainer, you never punish or reinforce a person or an animal you punish or reinforce behavior. And that's, again, the key. If we have a behavior, we can put it on a cue, we can train it, we can modify it, we can, um, we can alter it a little bit, make it better or make it disappear if we, if we need to. Yeah, that's, that's exactly the truth. And it's, it's probably one of the challenges that a lot of people have with training their dogs if they're not trainers or if even training and teaching their kids if they're not trainers, because we often make that mistake of punishing the child as opposed to punishing the behavior. And the best example I can give of that is, you know, if a child comes home with a bad report card and they they show you the report card so that you can sign it and you punish them for getting bad grades, you didn't punish the behavior of getting bad grades. That behavior, that getting the bad grade happened weeks or months ago. You punished the behavior of showing you the report card. So what happens is the children quickly learn to forge your signature or not show you the report card because that's the behavior that was punished. It was showing the report card that was punished, not the behavior of getting bad grades. And that often is what happens is if you don't understand that reinforcement and punishment is connected to behavior, we often, as the common person who doesn't understand training, connects it to the dog, to the horse, to the kid, to the spouse, and we punish people or we punish animals, and that's not the way animals learn. And so that's why that strategy doesn't work and it is often often it fails well it does remind me when i was a, a teenager i was quite rebellious and i i use this example quite frequently about how punishment doesn't teach you what to do it teaches you what not to do and my i would sneak out of the house quite frequently if my mom's listening i'm sorry mom <laughs> i did it way more than, than they even knew and i would get i would get caught because i was a stupid teenager but when they when they would catch me you know get some I'd get put on restriction my car taken away phone taken away but that never i didn't stop the behavior i didn't stop sneaking out i just learned not to get caught i learned this the system didn't oh say okay Okay, so the next time I'm going to do this when I'm sneaking right. out, it, 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 it wasn't the sneaking out that got you in trouble. It was getting caught that yes. got you in trouble. So that's what you learned how to avoid is how yes. can I get sneakier? How can I hide it better? It's, it's a very fine distinction, but it is, it is very true of people and kids and animals all the same. That's how behavior works. The laws of behavior don't change. They work across the board with all animals. The, the true 
the true essence of this it spoke to me is that whatever we're doing so i personally am and i am a teacher of of life now i i was an animal trainer for 15 years and now i'm more of a the animal trainer's mentor so to speak not so that they can become better trainers but so they can take care of themselves and it's so interesting you bring this up actually a couple of times the fact that we we are excellent at being patient at being consistent and doing positive reinforcement with our animals but then when it comes to ourselves and other human beings we are we use guilt we use shame we use we use a lot of punishment and so my my mentality my big goal is to help shift that focus from using punishment on ourselves to using the same principles of positive reinforcement training with our, with with each other and a lot of people will say oh i can't i can't do this or this is too hard or and so the whole idea like if it's is doing those labels removing those labels if it's just behavior we can modify it if it's you can use punishment punishment does have a purpose we discussed that quite frequently but let's focus on the positive let's see how we can we can use positive reinforcement to make it more effective yeah there's that's there's two chapters in the book that are devoted to the teaching of people and the fact that these same skills and same same techniques work with people just the same as they do with animals and so that's why i spend so many stories talking about the use of positive reinforcement and the fallout of punishment when it comes to working with people. Before we continue with our Zoo Notable, I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors. I couldn't do these Notables without them. So we'll be right back after these messages. I'm going to switch gears a little bit too. One of the most touching stories for me, and I don't know if you meant it to be this touching, but uh, the story of Serena, the search and rescue dog. What was really touching was again just how this is positive reinforcement at its at its best, is being able to expand and go out of context and save save lives. So this is a search and rescue dog who was helping helping firefighters, and one of the firefighters got stuck in the building. Serena went to the firefighter without her trainer, and then through radio, the firefighter gave Serena the directions for getting the blueprints to make so we could save all the lives in this building through through the radio. This is what was just crazy to me. And I love that last statement. Damn straight, I'm gonna tell her she's a good girl. <laughs> this was a this is the principle. We can blow people's mind and again save lives through this positive reinforcement. I was there when it happened. I wasn't I wasn't the one in the building when Serena was doing the the search, but I was surprised that it actually worked. I had trained Serena on a lot of these behaviors, but she wasn't my dog and search and rescue firefighter who sent her in uh, to to meet the person who was trapped down there had real confidence in his dog and I always really appreciated it. One of the things I learned from that was that that you have to have confidence and belief in what your dog knows. And if you have that confidence, it, it, it's much more likely to 
to to pay off than if you're doubting yourself all the time. But it was some really good training we had done. I just was of the belief that we weren't ready to show it off in the real world yet. It was still a behavior that was still in training. She had learned how to take a variety of directional cues and none of us could go into the building to to help this particular firefighter who was trapped, but Serena could get to him. And so Bill, the trainer, gave the firefighter instructions and told him what to say and what to do. And, you know, for us who were listening, it was like listening to a radio program because we didn't see it. We just heard it crackling over the radio as Bill would give instructions. And then the firefighter who was trapped down there would respond and tell us what was going on. And it was quite an amazing series of events that unfolded as the dog was directed to a bookcase and then up the bookcase and then directed to a certain position where he grabbed the binder of, 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 blueprints that were pulled off the shelf and brought to the firefighter and in the end the firefighter was saved and uh, and we were able to get the information we needed to be able to clear the rest of that building and so it was a very satisfying feeling whenever you are able to train an animal to do something like that and see the results of that training and see it actually pay off and then in this particular case actually save lives it was a really really good feeling but i remember when bill told his captain uh, we can send serena in there i was going no bill no don't oh no oh no because i was just feeling uncertain that our dog was really ready for that uh but bill had confidence in his dog i feel that once again this is a real life example a real life and a really i will admit extreme example where literally lives were on the line and our train the training that you did was able to save these lives and again that confidence um one thing i actually kind of felt when i when i was reading this was the relation of just how our training day to day helps us prepare for our worst day possible and i relate this to my husband who got kidney disease and we had been practicing a very very healthy lifestyle for for years and the doctors immediately wanted to put him on all this medication and we were asking what can we do changing diet changing exercise what can we do and the doctors were like don't worry about it we'll just put him on medication and we were very adamant no we can do this and when they told us what we needed to do to change our to change our our diet to help him um, it was it seemed pretty extreme for other people but because we had put everything into place already we were already eating healthy we we're already looking at ingredients it wasn't a hard thing for us to do it was actually a really small tweak here and there and once again that kind of reminded me of like if we start practicing what we're doing today then down the road when it really matters when it really, really matters, we'll have that confidence, what you're talking about, to, to make the different, to make the changes that we need, to go forth. And again, I love this example. It's really sweet. The case of Serena, save, save lives. But also, again, for you, really make the difference between a, a bad day and a, and, a, and a turning of the day around to a very good day. And what's most interesting about a lot of those behaviors that she was using, they were never intended to be used that way. They were actually a game that we played. Uh, Serena had been injured in a search and rescue nine months earlier. And while she was on bed rest, the veterinarian suggested that she 
not be doing anything too physically active, I began training her on these mental games of learning right from left and up and down and these different directional cues. And we just played it as a game, but it's a really good example of once we've taught the game and the animal knows the game, it can become a very useful tool in everyday real world training. It was not intended to be serious training. It was just intended to be fun. But then in the big scheme of things, if you train, train things correctly, all training should be perceived as a game to the animal. And so the fact that you're just playing another game shouldn't be a big deal to the dog. And so that's another valuable lesson for me was that that I always believed that training is like a game. So just because we were playing this no this non-serious game didn't mean it couldn't be used in a serious situation when the right situation presented itself. Precisely. Yeah, that's a really good point. Again, making it fun make, makes it make sure that they want to do it when the when the when it really matters. Um, right, if right. You, you make it kind of boring or if you're always really strict with the animal, I mean, we do want to be, hold them criteria, but if we're really harsh with the animal and we don't make it fun, then when we really need them to do it, this goes for like, again, let's just talk about a zoo animal. Oh, we're training them to get a blood sample. It's very serious. It's a very serious behavior. But if we don't have fun with it, then when we really need that blood sample, they're not going to present their tail fluke. They're not going to hold out their paw. They're not going to present their ear for us to get that blood sample that we, we, when we really need it. Another great story I really resonated with a lot was the all or nothing mentality with training. So this is when we're talking a little bit more the nuance when dealing with people, mm -hmm. but you're talking about people who are resistant to the positive, positive reinforcement training. And um, I, I do find it interesting. I have met people who are resistant to training either either again because they've labeled the animal oh that's not trainable or they've adhered to correctional training most of their lives i've never thought about this way but you have a, a a client and i think you said even three clients that were told that if they didn't embrace the entire philosophy then it was pointless to use just a few techniques and they weren't ready to throughout their their experience and you quote, on my way home, I felt troubled. All I could think about was, was that my biggest obstacle at each location had been conversations with my clients had with other positive reinforcement trainers. Are we sabotaging our own cause without realizing it? And I think that's a really great point. Yeah, it's a, it's a common problem. It's one that I deal with all the time in that uh, I love the fact that positive reinforcement training has become more and more mainstream. It used to be only a small percentage, maybe 10% of the dog trainers that you could run into were positive reinforcement trainers. Today, it's more like 45, 50, or even 55% are positive reinforcement trainers. And so I love the fact that people are embracing it. The sad part about it is that when people embrace something so strongly, they can become fanatical about it. And sometimes they can be such fanatics about it that if another person, a client or a person they come in contact with isn't a positive reinforcement trainer, they are flabbergasted by it and almost they are critical and often mean-spirited in their attacks on the person who isn't using positive reinforcement. And I always am baffled by that because 
as someone who believes in positive reinforcement, why aren't you using that positive reinforcement with your <laughs> colleagues or with their client or with these other people that you're working with? Don't criticize them. They need help. They need to be shown how to use positive reinforcement. If you've never used it before or never used it in that way before, you can't be criticized for not knowing how to use it. It is not something that's ever crossed your path before. And so much of my career has been working with individuals and organizations who have used traditional punishment in a lot of their training. And the fact that they reach out to me and want to find out how can we transition to positive reinforcement is a great thing. The mistake we often make is assuming that if someone is ready to start thinking about transitioning, that somehow they should be able to throw away all the tools they've always known how to use mm -hmm. and suddenly embrace a whole new set of tools without having learned how to use them well. And so we would never expect an animal that we're training to go from zero to a hundred like that. We're going to take small steps. We're going to use approximations to gradually teach our animal a new skill. It's the same way with people. If a traditional trainer who has often used punishment to get rid of unwanted behavior is asking me, how can I make the transition? The answer isn't, well, first get rid of all those punishers. Right. You can never ever use them again. That's what they know how to use. So don't take those tools away from them yet. Yes, I'm going to advocate my goal will be to get you to get rid of these tools eventually, but I'm not going to tell you to get rid of them until I've given you new tools to use in their place. So you have to meet the learner, whether it's a dog learner or a human learner, you have to meet the learner where they are, help them understand, show them how to use the tools. And then once they've learned to use the tools, they'll get better and better and better at it. And then they'll have something to replace the punishment tools they've used in the past with. But until they've learned to use those tools, you're not going to get very far. And so I'm always kind of on my soapbox a little bit preaching to my own community, the positive reinforcement community, is we have to learn to use that positive reinforcement with each other, to use it with other people, to help sway them over and not be such radical believers in positive reinforcement that we won't let anybody else into the club. It's interesting. I, I get on other people for not breaking down their behaviors into small steps. But then when it comes specifically to animal training, I'm, I'm like, no, I believe all of this. Right. All of it is good. And so use all of it. And again, what you're talking about right here is empathy. We, you know, right. We're not just where we're and This is very true, not just in training, not just in fitness, but in the conservation field. It's very important to meet people where they are and Absolutely. give them the tools and allow them to grow as much as you know let them grow not just force everything because i i come across this very frequently they have this feeling that you know it's plastic free july a lot of people are thinking oh i can't get rid of all the plastic so it, it's useless to get rid of any of it well that's that's a defeatist attitude What's one small thing that you can get rid of? Can you get rid of the plastic straw? I've heard a lot of people say, oh, the plastic straw is nothing. It's just a little plastic straw. Well, if everyone said that, we would be in a lot bigger uh, problem than we are right now. 
it's all those little things. What can you do right here? It's the mentality of what, what tool, what positive reinforcement tool could you use? And then gradually letting that grow and seeing how great that worked and then building up from there. What's one small conservation tool you can do to start right here right now? Oh, I can stop using plastic straws or I have a canvas bag. I can stop using plastic, plastic bags at the grocery store. You're also talking a little bit about that incompatible behavior, the alternative behavior. So we're just going to, we're just going to tweak it a little bit. We're going to give you a new tool. And now you can, you can use that tool instead of an older tool. And when you're ready, we're going to use a new tool. This is just, I love this because it's just like animal training, but it was a great reminder for me because I think I, I put in quotation marks, I drank the Kool-Aid and I am a 100%, <laughs> I believe 100% in the positive reinforcement training. I know it, it works. I, I have felt it, I have experienced it and I've seen it out in the field. So I, I, I adhere to it, but I also know it's true that punishment does still, does still exist regardless of what I try to do for the animals, with try, whatever I try to do for myself, Punishment is still around me. It still exists. Well, Trying sure. to get rid of it is 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 going to be a moot point, anyways. Yeah, you can't. You're, the The goal of a, being a positive reinforcement trainer is not to eliminate all punishers that exist in the world. Uh, punishers are are natural. They exist in the environment and. You have to remember that punishment is in the eye of the beholder. You know, when uh, when it's pouring down rain, there are certain animals that flee for cover because they find the rain punishing. That yet there's another group of animals that run into the rain because they find it reinforcing. And so we have to remember that what's punishing to one animal might be reinforcing to another. And so our role or our goal is not to get rid of all punishers because everything is perceived differently by different animals. It's just part of our job is to say, how can we facilitate helping this animal learn through as minimal a stress as possible with the least kind of, of, of least amount of aversives with the most help that we can give them. Mm -hmm. And that's part of what we try, are trying to do as positive reinforcement trainers is you can accomplish a great deal with positive reinforcement. And you said it earlier, part of it is just determining if you don't want the animal to do this behavior, what do you want them to do instead? The biggest problem I have when I work with clients is they say, I want my dog to stop jumping on people when they come in the house. And my follow-up to that is, okay, not a problem. What would you like to see them do instead? And the average dog owner will say to stop jumping and you have to push them a little harder and go, well, what would, what would that look like? What is a behavior they could do that would make you happy? And, and, and usually as a trainer, I want to come in with suggestions and say, well, do you want the dog to, when someone comes in to go to their bed and lay down? And they go, yes, that's what I would like to do. And then you can then begin showing them how to teach the dog this new replacement behavior. What they're looking for is attention from the person who just came in. If they can learn that going to their bed and waiting there patiently is going to get them that attention, it will serve to replace the behavior of jumping on people. But 
Our problem is so often as humans, we want to look at how do we stop this? How do we make it go away? And behaviorally speaking, if all you can think about is how to get rid of behavior, well, then you have to use punishment. By definition, punishers diminish the frequency of behavior. And so you're never going to be able to get away from punishment unless you start thinking of the question in another way. What would I like to see instead? Let me reinforce these behaviors that I would like to see instead. Let me make that more convenient, more easy for the animal to do so they can earn reinforcement. And then punishment doesn't have to be used, but you have to plan for it and understand the way that works. I'm going to interrupt us here very quickly because, well, Ken and I went off on a slight tangent about teachers, trainers, and mentors always learning. And if you like the uncut version, which is still clean and very fun, please consider joining my Patreon to earn bonus material like bonus interview segments, excerpts from my new book, and chances to connect with me and other zoo fitters. The link is in the description down below. But here is where Ken and I pick back up talking about the importance of learning. As, a, as in, in any profession, if you really want to be at the top of your game, you sort of have to be a lifelong learner. You have to become very aware of the fact that nobody's going to ever know it all. And you can't possibly have all of the information about every type of training that's ever occurred in the world. Um, you're going to become a much better trainer if you keep an open mind and keep learning keep getting new information, keep learning from others. Uh, it's a big part of good professional development. It, it, it should be an ongoing thing. And it doesn't matter if you're a trainer with five months of experience, five years of experience, or 50 years of experience, you still have more that you can learn. And there's still more that, you, that can contribute to you becoming a better, more knowledgeable, more well-rounded trainer. Yes. I, one of my favorite animals in the world is the sea squirt. And it's because the sea squirt has shown scientists why we have brains. And it's because when the sea squirt's a, a young, when it first comes in the world, it actually moves and it has a very primitive brain cord. But the sea squirt is a beautiful, like sponge looking creature. And that the second part of its life, it anchors um, to the floor. And the first thing it does is it loses its tail. It absorbs its tail and then it eats its brain or it absorbs its brain because it doesn't need a brain anymore. It doesn't need to move. So the reason we have a brain, this is what scientists believe, the reason that, that animals have brains is to move. Now you can use that in a literal sense. We can't move without our brain, but on that figurative sense, we can't, if we're not moving forward, we're not continuously learning, using our brain, then we might as well be sea squirts and be the zombies of the sea. So yeah, thanks for that. And the, this actually rolls right into that last, my last story that uh, hit me was the dolphin handshake when you were, you were touring another facility and you saw, you saw the trainer, uh, so a dolphin handshake, you know, the dolphin comes up out of the water, you give a dolphin the, the, either a handshake or a high five, and then that comes back, it goes back into the water. And we, and you and I are actually on the same page. I used to, I used to reinforce the height of the handshake, them coming out of the water, holding still, and then blowing the whistle before they went in the water. 
the point for this, this story <clears throat> was you saw it in a couple other facilities where the trainer reinforced or uh, blew the whistle, bridging or telling the dolphin the precise moment that they did a good job was when they re-entered the water and you were confused and you thought that was just bad, bad timing on the, on the bridge. Uh, but it comes to find out that the, these people were actually bridging perfectly for, the, for their situation because they were on a microphone. And if the dolphins made a splash as they re-entered the water, they'd get their microphone wet. It could cause some technical difficulties and it could even stop the show. So I found this again, this is kind of relating to the previous statement of like meeting people where they are. We don't always know the whole story to every situation. And we always need to learn and assume the best, best of, of everything. What I learned there is that don't assume anything, but if you are going to assume, you know, let's, let's get that some positive, assume positive intent. No one's ever doing anything specifically to ruin your life or to ruin the animal's behavior. So assume positive intent and then ask some questions. Yeah, I, what, it's one of the biggest challenges that I see, especially in the modern era of social media. We watch someone on a video that we see online, whether it's on YouTube or on Instagram or Snapchat or wherever someone's posting video and we see something and we immediately jump to a conclusion. We look at it and go, oh, that's funny or that's sad or that's bad or that's good but we don't have the whole context. And that's what was happening with this dolphin story that I was talking about. I was not confused at all. I just assumed that that trainer was wrong. <laughs> I jumped to the conclusion that that's not a very good trainer and they didn't know what they were doing. And I lived with that belief for years. And it wasn't until much later where I saw someone do something similar where the dolphin came up, touched the, the trainer's hand, the dolphin went back in the water and after it re-entered the water, they blew their whistle. I knew this particular trainer. So many years later, I asked the question, why are you blowing your whistle when the animal enters the water? And that's when she said to me, well, it's because we have expensive microphones on our belt and we don't want it to get splashed. And so we wait to say good job when they've entered the water cleanly and didn't make a splash. And for me, I use that story to illustrate to people, don't jump to conclusions just because what they did may look like a mistake in your world. You don't know what rules they're living. It, it could be that they are a poor trainer and making a mistake, but don't jump to that conclusion right off the bat. You should ask yourself, I bet there's a good reason for doing it that way and give them the benefit of the doubt. And, and cause you're not always going to be able to ask the person a question. You're just going to see something and you're going to jump to a conclusion and we make so many errors in judgment because we don't have the full story. We don't understand what the reason is for the way another trainer reinforces or why they do things the way they do. It may not make sense to us, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong if you don't understand their world, their criteria, their reasons for making those decisions. Always, always be curious about, about the world. I, I relate this to the real world immediately. Every time I'm on the road, I get cut off by somebody, right? I learned to play what I call the virtue game. The game is, again, is to assume 
a positive story about why they would why they would be speeding. I'm like, oh, uh, maybe they're on their way to the hospital, and I hope that whatever's happening goes well for them. And or or if, if somebody is rude to me at the supermarket, again, my I assume a positive like maybe again they've had they've had a horrible day, and the last thing that they need from me is to for me to also feed into that rudeness. So we don't know what's happened. They may have had they may have heard that you know they may have been kicked out of their home they may have their grandmother may have passed away we don't know the whole story behind it and so don't jump to those conclusions so especially with animal training but also in real world applications it's really really helpful just to always assume positive intent maybe make it that a little bit of a game what what could what could be going on that would be a, a reasonable a reasonable explanation for this well that's that's a great way to look at things and i just there's there's so many examples in the world where if you take a video and cut out the first half of the video or the last half of the video and just show a part of it it can give you a totally different impression as to what's taking place and and the likelihood is we don't have the full story so let's give them the benefit of the doubt and see what we can learn and what we can find out Absolutely. And on that note, I'm not going to assume anything, but I'm going to respect your time. <laughs> Thank you. I, I can't get over how, how amazing I really found this book, really insightful. It wasn't just a book on animal training. It was, again, a, a little bit of like the nuances and getting some personal stories. I felt like I was getting to know you a little bit, a little bit better. Um, and and get a little bit more in awe of of all the work you've done. You've worked with butterflies. You've worked with elephants uh, in Africa. You've worked you know with you've worked with dolphins, sea lions, belugas, and now you're working at a ranch. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about Karen Pryor's the ranch? Sure. I I am the vice president of of animal training and executive vice president of Karen Pryor Clicker Training. Many people know Karen Pryor as the leaders and founders of the positive reinforcement movement, although positive reinforcement was going on long before she came along, she sort of popularized it in the dog world. And I, in the last five years, moved to Washington State and set up this ranch where I'm living now that's a place for us to, to experiment a little bit, but we also do a lot of classes here and help teach people about the use of positive reinforcement. They come out, spend an entire week with us, get to work with an animal. We've got donkeys and goats and alpacas, and we have a variety of different species so that people can learn the similarities and differences and what we can, the value of being able to work with different species is really understanding how training really works. If you work with a type of animal that you've always worked with before, we often have these preconceived notions about why animals behave the way they do. But when you put a novel animal, an animal that someone doesn't know very well in front of them, they sort of go back to zero and learn training from the, the purest, most theoretical perspective and are able to see and understand why it works. And so we have a variety of different courses here at the ranch that people come out and take. They spend, as I said, a full week here with us, kind of immersing themselves in training and how training works, and they become better, stronger trainers because of it. Wonderful. Yes. And you're not far from me. So I, I am I know I'm one of these days I'm gonna I'm going to definitely hit one of your classes. It sounds 
sounds amazing because you're an amazing instructor. You're again, a great, great mentor. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. A very My happy pleasure. zookeeper week to you. <laughs> well, thank you. Same to you and uh, PJ. Thanks so much for inviting me to be on your podcast. I enjoyed being here with you today. If you would like to join Ken on the ranch or join hundreds of positive reinforcement trainers from around the world during the Karen Pryor Clicker Expo, you can learn more about how to get involved at clickertraining.com. You can pick up a copy of Eye of the Trainer in the bookstore, sign up for the ranch classes, and learn how to take your training skills to the next level. The link is in the description down below. Thank you so much to Ken for joining me on this very special Zoo Notable. Head to ZooFit.net for more National Zookeeper Week blog posts all week. And remember to live green and train positive today, tomorrow, and forever. I'll catch you all next time.